Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. So we're not turning to John. Uh, we are going to pick John back up, and it was really, really hard for me to, to leave John because last Sunday was just amazing. Um, the passage in John 6, uh, the, the music, just everything... Last Sunday was one of those services that you walk away just going, That's, that was it. Um, Jesus was central and, and high and exalted. And so to move away from that is a little bit challenging for me. Um, I want to because I believe that we need to kind of recalibrate our focus on what the Bible has to say about this issue at hand. You'll notice the title of the sermon is as plain as plain can be, <laughs> The Necessity of Small Groups. I think I went through five or six different titles. Um, some of you kn- know me or knew me, you know, six years ago when I was first starting out in ministry. And I love just being provocative, you know, trying to say something that would just kind of grab your ears. And even if what I was saying wasn't necessarily true, which is so wrong, and I have repented from that, but I would just want to grab your attention and have you stare at Jesus and be transformed uh, by doing that. So my old flesh started bringing up titles such as Why Preaching is Not Enough. It's a provocative title, and I believe I could show you that case in Scripture. I had so many other titles that were like that, that were just ended up being foolish. That's why what you have is very plain. It's very straightforward. But it's chosen with a careful heart. I desperately desire to not be provocative or manipulative in what I'm saying this morning. I I desperately desire that. I want sincerely to show you patterns that I think are in Scripture, and they're patterns not only that I think are there, they're patterns I've uh, addressed our leadership team with all of these patterns. Um, They would agree, they stand behind me on, on what I'm saying here. And so I sincerely want you to just see Scripture. I'm not going to try and say things just for the purpose of saying provocative things. I want them to come from Scripture, as always. I want you to see this in the text. And if you don't see it in the text, then just disregard it. We're talking about the necessity of small groups. We talked a little bit about it last week when I said that it is impossible for someone who is not a part of small groups, who only comes to the worship service, it's impossible for them to not be an emaciated Christian. I believe that. I believe that firmly. Um, but there were caveats that I wanted to make that I didn't make in the sermon that I wanted to make now as we're diving into this subject. So, again, this is family time. We're going to have family time. We're going to dive in, and there will be a sermon in this, but it's less sermon and preaching and more family time, and, and let's, let's talk together. Let's, let's dialogue about these things. So, uh, the reality of the New Testament does give caveats, right? It gives caveats in the Bible um, for people that can't be plugged in. People that can't be plugged in to what the church does on a regular basis. This is the caveat that I wanted to make last week. Uh, Some people even came up to me afterwards and said, um, uh, I want to be involved in a small group. I, I desperately want to, but I can't because I'm taking care of somebody. Uh, Or I can't because I'm sick and I don't get to be there all the time. Totally understand that. Uh, The Bible makes a case for that, right? The Bible is very clear that those who are unable to attend the fellowship and make it their their purpose and their priority to be in fellowship, the church is supposed to go to them. Take care of orphans and widows. Take care of those who might be outside of the fellowship of the church. Take care of them. That's why we do that as a leadership team. Those who can't be a part of our church on Sunday mornings, we go to their house. Um, we've been to houses of uh, elderly people that have, for some reason, aren't able to attend the church for a long period of time. We go to their house. We take communion with them. We bring fellowship to them. So there's a, there's a huge caveat there. So I don't want there to be some legalistic, you need to be involved in small groups or else. Look, there are reasons why. There are absolutely reasons why. And sometimes you just can't make it to midweek meetings. You can't make it to things uh, because you're sick or whatever. Totally fine. There are caveats for that even in the the pages of Scripture. So what I'm asking this morning is not 
that we make a hard and fast rule and regulation about small groups because we want to just make that in some legalistic way. This is what I'm asking above all things. I'm asking that you genuinely rethink your life. I'm pleading with you to genuinely rethink your priorities. You structure your life. I structure my life around something. There's one thing that takes the center of the universe of our lives. There's one thing. And I'm asking you to genuinely, honestly assess what is the one thing. Um, The sun in the middle of your solar system of your spiritual life, what's the one thing? We all struggle with idolatry, hence one of the reasons why we're studying this book. We all struggle with idolatry. And idolatry would be placing anything but Jesus and his priorities in the center of your universe. So my question is, what is the center of your universe? Is the center of your universe work? Because if it's work, then you're going to say work takes priority over Sunday morning. Work takes priority over a midweek meeting. Is it kids? Because if it's kids, you might say, well, this is, you know, distracting for my kids to be a part of a small group uh, during the middle of the week, and they're going to be up later than they normally are, and uh, it's just not helpful. Uh, Is it leisure? Is it vacations? Um, Is it sports? Is it sleep? You know what? I just want to get to bed at a decent hour. Is it just ease? I don't want to add one more thing to my, my week. I am just asking, can we biblically reprioritize what should be in the center of our universe um, and, and ask the question of our own souls, what is currently taking center stage? What is the priority of our life? What do we live for? Because the reality is, if you make the priority of your life a certain thing, uh, purposefully or unintentionally, you will live for that thing. You will sacrifice everything else for that thing. Even the things that you know intellectually should be a greater priority, you will say, no, this is ultimately my priority and we can sacrifice. We see this all the time um, in the church. I saw this all the time in the church as a youth pastor. I know Brian has seen this all the time in the church as a youth pastor as well. Um, vacation, school, and sports. Those are the biggest things that always took priority. And we knew that kids weren't going to be there because they were off doing something. Um, the church... Though people claim that the church is a priority, ultimately they prove by their lifestyle that it's not. Um, my wife and I, we, we have to make these priorities now, right? Um, because as our kids grow up, we're going to want to just live our lives for them. And so we make these priorities now. And We have a very a, a rich blessing in our family because um, we know that uh, sports, uh, academics, and, and leisure do take a, an immense priority in in the church and family's lives. And uh, it's just a blessing because um, my brother-in-law, her brother, uh, her younger brother, is playing baseball professionally. And uh, he's in a high double-A team. Hopefully he's going to skip triple-A and go straight to the majors this year. And uh, I believe when I was youth pastor, he wasn't there twice for the four years that I was a youth pastor. He wasn't at, in our church and Sunday morning youth group two times because he had baseball. And we always say, you know what, if he can make it without uh, leaving church as a priority and saying this is above, if he can do it, anybody can do it. He, if he can make it, then we can say that the priority will always be being in the house of God on a Sunday, no ifs, ands, or buts. We can do that. And if God wants to bless that, he can. Um, so I'm, I'm going to plead with you. What is your priority? What do you live for? And I know we need to always restructure our priorities in our own hearts every day, every day. So Ephesians chapter 4 is where we are. Let me ask God's blessing on our time and we will dive in. God, please be with us as we dive into all of these passages, rich passages about your word, uh, about small group, what it has to say about how your word interacts with our souls in small group. And so I pray that you would do an uh, amazing work in our church, that our church collectively would be... um, submitting to the priority of Jesus in everything that we do and specifically on a Sunday morning and and making time uh, during the middle of the week for this. May it be a priority for um, all of us and may we submit to your lordship in this area. We love you. May your spirit clarify these thoughts and may we enjoy a time just as a church family around your word this morning. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Uh, so two main points we're going to look at this morning. Point number one, I want to show you the biblical rationale for small groups. And then point number two, I want to show you the practical implementation of that rationale. So biblical rationale and then practically what it looks like. So I want to prove this to you from the Bible. And again, if these verses don't say this, then just disregard it. But I, I want to show you these things in the scriptures and, uh, and then we'll, we'll talk about how it practically applies in our situation. So number one, biblical rationale for small groups. You will obviously not find the word small group in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Um, just like membership, uh, church membership isn't in the Bible, but it's implicit throughout the pages, and it's clear in the New Testament that church membership is a reality. Just like Trinity, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, uh, but none of us would deny the Trinity. It's clearly seen, it's implied. Same thing with small groups. Clearly seen, clearly implied um, in the Bible. Uh, we call them small groups. It doesn't matter what you call them, and that's why I'm not really advocating for small groups per se. I'm advocating this morning for there has to be something in your life outside of a worship service. If you only come to a, an hour and a half worship service, if that's all you are a part of, I don't think that you will be able to be a strong, healthy Christian. I think you will be an emaciated and an emaciating Christian because you aren't involved in certain aspects that the church has been commanded to be involved in in the Bible. So um, that's the kind of thesis of this sermon. Uh, there are biblical commands in the New Testament that believers cannot live out if they are not involved in some form of smaller groups. That's why, again, it's not small groups that I'm advocating for, but something outside of the worship service. If you only come to the worship service, I believe, and the leadership of the church believes, that there are commands that you cannot live out, you cannot be obedient to in the scriptures. If you are not involved in something outside of the worship service, at the very least, if that sounds a little bit too much, and I don't think it is, but at the very least, it is intensely difficult to live out these commands that scripture gives to believers if you are only involved in the worship service on Sunday morning. So we can pull it back one notch. I don't think it has to be, but just in case we can pull it back, especially in the modern American culture. If you go to the Philippines, if you go to China, if you go to India, you know, they have five hour church services on Sundays. And they get everything done. So I, I want to be clear that this is an hour and a half sermon in an American culture. The way that we do church um, is the way that we do church for a number of different reasons. But the way that we do church on a Sunday morning does not allow us to get these things lived out and obeyed and done. So let's look at some of these things. Okay, Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we are. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. God gave some, this is the church, as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, as pastors and teachers. For what purpose? So God gave CBC a pastor, a lead teaching pastor who's the main teacher and other pastors. Uh, Tim Regan is a pastor as far as an elder is concerned. Um, Brian is an elder in testing and training. Uh, we have deacons, we have other people like that that are in testing and in training as well. God gave these people for a reason. What's the reason? Verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So my job is to equip you so that you would do work in serving. And what is the serving that you are to be doing? Because a lot of people will go, well, I do serve. And you do serve. And I don't want to discredit the service that you do on Sundays, even today. You who are serving by putting up the signs, you served in the rain. I know that you work hard. Even after this service is done, we're going to set up chairs. We do a lot of serving at this church. But there are two types of serving, and this type of serving is going to be a different type of serving. There's a serving that I would say is a Brett serving. Uh, it, it's a serving that kind of facilitates the machine working so that more people can come, and it's, it's a place that's uh, able to hold more people. Um, the, the setting up signs and things like that, that is serving. I don't know if that's necessarily using your spiritual gift, but that is serving, but it's serving as a breadth. It's serving so that if more people come, they can see where they're supposed to go. It's not serving as a depth. That's the other type of service. They're serving as spiritual depth. Now, again, these two can intersect, and I'm sure that they do on many occasions when you're putting the signs up. I put them up a couple times, and I'm sure that there's depth uh, service and discipleship happening as your arms are getting uh, torn to bits by the ivy bushes and all those things. I'm sure as somebody's, you know, wanting to swear, there's discipleship to say, hey, what are you treasuring right now? And so absolutely depth is happening while you are serving in the breadth format. I totally believe that. But this passage says that the service 
middle of verse 12, is for the building up of the body of Christ. It's the depth. It's to build you up, not breadth. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but by speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up or grow deep in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. So my job is to enable you to do that job. My job is not to enable or is not to make you grow up. My job is to enable you to help each other grow up. And that's not able to be done on a Sunday morning. Uh, this, is a di- this is not a dialogue. This is a monologue. You're not building one another up. I'm equipping you, and then I leave you to do the work of the ministry. But if you never then have the option outside of this moment to do the work of ministry with one another, then you can't be fulfilling this command. Does that make sense? So, uh, again, you can totally serve. You can serve in breadth capacities, and it can have depth involved in it. But this is what I would say. When was the last time on a Sunday morning that you had somebody come to you, confess sin, you worked through the sin, you prayed with them, you saw growth, you saw change, and you saw them then go to somebody else and encourage them with what they were struggling with. Now they're helping somebody else bear that burden on a Sunday morning. I've never had that happen in my entire life in ministry. In almost 12 years now of ministry, I've never seen that happen on a Sunday morning. It's always, what do you struggle with? Okay, let's work through that biblically. Let me pray for you and let's meet. And then we meet, and we meet, and we meet, and we meet, and we meet. And then I start seeing them meeting with somebody else in that area. Sunday morning doesn't lend itself uh, to this kind of building up one another in, in the body. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12. So these, again, these are commands that the Bible has given Two believers, New Testament believers, that I believe cannot be lived out if you are only a part of the worship service on a Sunday morning. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren. So this is be cautious. This is serious. That there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But, so instead, do this. Encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So this literally cannot be lived out if you only come to a Sunday morning worship service because it says day after day together. Now, granted, you can call somebody the next day. Totally. That's fine. Um, But at the very least, see the seriousness of this passage. I believe that people stop attending church and therefore prove themselves, 1 John, that they were never saved to begin with, fulfilling this passage. If we hold fast our assurance until the end, we will prove that we are saved. So if we let go of our assurance before we reach the end, we will prove that we were never saved. I believe that that happens because of a neglect of obeying this command. I believe that people who only go to the worship service on Sunday morning are, are susceptible to, to losing their assurance faster um, because they're not doing what this command says. Encourage one another. Be in fellowship with one another. We need each other to be reminded of what D.A. Carson said. Have faith in Jesus. That's what saves. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. You know this passage. Let us hold fast the the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider, let us, all of us, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deed, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Every uh, commentary that I read on that word assembling together said that it's not pertaining to the temple assembly that they used to have as New Testament believers, but rather meeting together during the middle of the week, home to home, house to house, as we're going to see in the book of Acts and in the epistles. So um, 
don't forsake the assembly together. Why? Because we need to encourage one another. Why? Because the day is drawing near when we have no more opportunity to encourage each other to believe in Jesus and to keep believing in Jesus. So stimulate one another. I can tell you how I think that you could stimulate one another to love and good deeds, but you cannot live out stimulating one another to love and good deeds on a regular basis if you only come to the worship service. Again, just please hear there's caveats at the beginning. So if there's like massive condemnation just heaping on your soul right now and it's because you're taking care of somebody, please, I don't want that. So again, I just plead with the Spirit to clarify these thoughts. Um, this is the church being the church to one another. This is Ephesians 4 actively being lived out in Hebrews chapter 10. A uh, couple more. You don't have to turn to them, but just write them down. Titus chapter 2. Titus 2. You know Titus 2, 3 through 4. Always fun to remember those passages. Titus 2, 3, 4. So Titus 2, 3 through 4. Older women, likewise, um, are supposed to instruct younger women to love their husbands. What is that meaning and how is that done? The New Testament has a model where they get together to hear the apostles teaching in the temple, usually on Sundays. And then they break and they hang out at each other's houses throughout the rest of the week and they fellowship together. I believe that in the, in the model of the New Testament church, when they gather together and they just sit and they listen to Paul preach or Peter preach, in the model of the New Testament church, when Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that women are not allowed to teach, are not allowed to preach, are not allowed to have exercise authority over men, women couldn't preach in the temple. They can't preach over the men. So I believe that Titus 2 can't be lived out in the worship service. Um, it can't be lived out in this setting. I don't think it was lived out in the temple setting. I believe it was lived out in the home groups or whatever you want to call them um, during the week. And I think uh, we, we often just think we give a principle. Um, like a, uh, an older woman goes to a younger woman and says, you know something? You need to love your husband. And they go, I never knew that. I never thought of that. Well, I'm good now. You know, my marriage will be awesome. That's obviously not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying... You need to help the women, the older women need to help the younger women how to love their husbands. So a younger woman says, man, my husband is a jerk. I don't know how to honor him. I don't know how to love him. I don't know how to respect him. And an older woman says, you know what? My husband and I went through a lot of difficult, rough patches. Let me get together with you and help you. It's how, it's how practically principles are lived out. Uh, I think far too often we in church think that just administering a principle is enough. You know, somebody says, I'm struggling with my finances. And you say, well, Matthew 6 says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Boom. You're good to go now because I gave you a principle. No, you need the principle, but the principle needs to be backed up by practically, how does that work? I, I am sure not going to hear that and go, I know what to do with all my finances. I know how to budget. I know how to save. I know No. So we... Teach them how to do that through the principle of store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, practically, this is what this looks like. Make a budget, all these different things. Um, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, um, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these things to faithful men who will be able to do and teach others also. I can't do that on a Sunday morning. I can't, I can't live that command out on a Sunday morning. I can only live that command out when I meet with people outside of a Sunday morning because I need to figure out if they're faithful. Entrust these to faithful men. Are you faithful to be on time at the exact same location when we meet doing the homework so that we can dive in together outside of the worship service? If you're not, the Bible says that person's not a faithful man. So I can't do that here. I need to do that outside of Sunday morning. And I know that the other... Uh, Elders and elders in training do that as well with other men. Very practically, let me just give you a list of the one another's that I believe cannot be lived out in a worship service alone. Um, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and in doing so fulfill the law of Christ. How do you realistically do this on a Sunday morning? I know it does happen. 
Somebody says, I need prayer for something. I see people praying after church service. That's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. But I know for me, my Sunday mornings are just a frenzied, intense mess. And so if I'm called to bear one another's burdens, I can't do that on a Sunday morning because I'm saying, I'll pray for you and let's meet, and I'll pray for you and let's meet, and that's a really good thing, let's meet. So I'm not able to dive in deep and, and truly bear their burden the way that Galatians 6 talks about. That can be done in a small group setting. First Thessalonians 4.18, comfort one another with the resurrection. Um, this has in mind, obviously, people that have passed away, and you can comfort them with the resurrection. If somebody in our congregation loses a loved one, I'm not then going to be preaching the next day, the next Sunday, on the resurrection. So how can we do that together? We can do that together outside of this time. First Thessalonians 5.11, uh, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Or, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians 5.11 is encourage one another and build each other up. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. James 5.16, pray for one another. Again, I know that that happens uh, sporadically after the service, but this is more intentional and more time given to hearing everybody's prayer requests and praying for everyone. 1 Peter 4, 9, be hospitable towards each other. Hospitality is difficult to live out on a Sunday morning instead of during the middle of the week. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another. Romans 12, 10, devote yourselves to one another. Give yourselves to one another. Um, Ephesians 4, 2, tolerate one another. That's one of the one another's, tolerate one another. Um, I don't think that you really come to a place of tolerating when you're only hanging out with somebody for an hour and a half. Like, you haven't gotten to a place where they're grading on you so much that you have to tolerate them. Maybe you do with me because I'm talking a bunch. But, uh, but tolerating, tolerating somebody um, takes time. You've got to be in a relationship with them. And then it's, oh, okay, here's the thing that I would change, but that's okay. We've got to tolerate one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other. That's very challenging to do for everybody on a Sunday morning. So summing it up. The church is a covenant community in which all members are ministers. Ephesians 4. We all have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit ministers to the body through each member for the depth and the building up of the body. The ministry of every member is indispensable for the church to be what God calls it to be. If we don't have the ministry that God's called us to do lived out in our church, then we aren't doing what God's called us to do. And the ministry of the word is commanded from all the members to all the other members. So you need to be sharing the word with others and practically how to live it out, and they need to be doing that with you. Those are some of the commands that can't be lived out if you just attend a worship service. So um, the next question that I have for the biblical rationale very quickly is, is it a pattern in the New Testament? Is it a pattern in the New Testament? I believe it is. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. You can write these down. I think some of them are on the screen behind me. We're going to start flying because we're going to get through all these things. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Actually, you know what? Let's do one. Let's go to one. I want to make sure that your eyes see these. Verse 37, uh, the unbelievers, the Jewish unbelievers hear the message that Peter is preaching. They're pierced to the heart. What should we do? They're baptized. Uh, They receive Jesus. They receive forgiveness of sins. Uh, Go down verse 42. Well, verse 41 says there were about 3,000 that were added to their number. Um. Verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So there are different things that they're devoting themselves to. They're devoting themselves to teaching, which we would call that sermons. We would call that a monologue. But they're also devoting themselves to fellowship, which is different than teaching, and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And the breaking of bread always happens inside of homes in the rest of Acts. So the fellowship and the breaking of the bread is happening in a different location. The apostles' teaching is normally happening in the temple. Sometimes it happens in homes. But the breaking of bread and fellowship is always happening. Those two combined is always happening in homes. And the Lord blesses. The Lord keeps adding to their number. Um, They keep taking uh, meals together. Verse 43, everyone feels a sense of awe and wonder. Verse 44, they all have everything together in common. They begin selling all their property and possessions. Verse 46, day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So they're in the temple, fellowshipping, hearing sermons, but they're also meeting day to day uh, from house to house, or literally in the Greek, it's in the private homes, going to other people's houses and 
practically living out the one another's with each other. Acts 5.42 says every day in the temple and from house to house, same thing. Acts chapter 20, verse 20, Paul says, I taught in the temple and I taught from house to house publicly and privately. Now, the book of Acts is not prescriptive by any means. It's not go and do church that way. If, If it were, we would be missing a lot of commands in our church. The book of Acts is descriptive. And so I believe that these... Uh, in the temple and in the houses is descriptive. It's not, so we need to do the same thing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, these are describing how the prescriptions are lived out in the New Testament church. So the prescribed uh, necessities that God had given to the church need need to have a way to live themselves out. And so the way that the early church lived them out, though it's not prescribed to us this way, is described as they're in the temple, they hear an apostle preach, they walk away, they hang out in homes together, and they gather for the purpose of fellowship and, um, and discipleship. Later on in the book of Ephesians and the book of 1 Corinthians, they all say the same thing as well. Uh, Jesus' own pattern was this way. He taught the crowds, the masses, and then he would go away and he would teach the disciples the so what of how to do that. What does that look like? They would ask him questions. Um, this is one of the reasons why we do sermon discussion, even in our small groups. We talk about the sermon, and if anybody has questions, we raise them, we dialogue about them. Um, Small groups are so helpful for, if I'm talking for 45 minutes on a Sunday morning on average, I'm sure there are questions that are raised. I'm sure there's a lot of questions that have been raised right now, and I would love to answer them. But I can't answer them on a Sunday morning, um, and we we can't press pause. As I'm speaking, raise a hand, hang on. It's not a dialogue that way. And I don't think it should be because I think the Bible prescribes it that way. So that's why Jesus would teach, but then he would teach. He taught, and then he would teach. He taught the masses, but he also picked 12 disciples that lived with him everywhere he went. I wish we could do that here because that's genuine discipleship. Just see how I live. Watch how I live life and ask questions. Why do you do that? Why do you not do what I do? So biblical rationale, if I can put it in two twofold category. Number one. There are commands in the Bible that I believe cannot be fully lived out if you only attend the Sunday morning worship service. There has to be something outside of this. I gave you some of those Ephesians, Hebrews passages like that, Titus 2 and 2 Timothy 2. Number two, there are several patterns that describe much more intentional fellowship outside of an organized time of preaching and teaching in the New Testament. It's not a prescription, but it's a description of how the early church got the prescribed commands obeyed and done. So, that's our biblical rationale. What does that look like for us? Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Number two, practically. Hebrews chapter 13. I want to just take this passage as an example for us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let the love, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who were ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? So I preach a sermon on that passage, and one of you thinks, you know what, I am struggling with loving money. And this, verse 5 says, be free from the love of money, be content with what you have. And it gives a promise. Do that because Jesus has said, I will always be with you, I'm never going to leave you, never forsake you. So you have, you have the principle, you have the promise, you're good to go. And you walk out of here resolved, I'm going to stop loving money, I'm going to start loving Jesus and trusting his promises. Amen and amen. And as you walk away, you start to struggle. You start to falter. You walk away, you think, I can do this. I can manage to struggle on my own. I can figure this out. I can fix myself. And you walk out. What are you missing? You're missing a lot of the one another's. You're missing James 5. Confess your sins to one another. Hey, I struggle with this. Can you help me? Um, you're, you're missing Galatians 6. Bear one another's burden. Say, I have a burden. Help me. You're missing a lot of the one another's, and because of that, you're going to walk out resolved on Sunday morning, and you're going to come back the next Sunday confessing the exact same sin over and over again. Will you have life change? 
Absolutely, because you have the Holy Spirit and you're a believer. But will you have significant life change? No. Um, This is why I say emaciated Christian, not dead Christian. You're still a believer. If you only go to worship service, you're still a believer. Um, But you're not going to be healthy walking with the Lord uh, in a a healthy way. So, what do you have to do? There's two things that you have to do. You have to hold fast to hope with with the principle and the promise given in God's word when the word is preached. But then you must go to other people. You need other people to help you with this. Not just Sunday morning, not just from a pastor. This is Ephesians 4. Other people help you. I give principles and promises, and you live those out practically with one another. That's the model of the New Testament church. That's the command. That's the prescription of the New Testament church. I give principle and promise from Scripture, and you live it out practically. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us to do. Ephesians 4 says that the pastors and the elders of the church cannot be your only spiritual influence in the church life. Therefore, and I believe I can say it this way, to choose not to be in some kind of a small group outside of Sunday morning worship service is to choose to be a step removed from the ordinary spiritual caregiving design of the church. It's just you're choosing to be a step removed. Why would you choose that? I don't know. That's up to you and God. I can give you some reasons. Different priorities. It's not a priority in your life. Not your passion. Scared. Don't want to open up. Been to a bad small group. Don't want to go back. Prideful. Feel like you can do it on your own. There's a lot of reasons. All of them are bad. (laughs) Um, But you have to figure that out before the Lord, what reason that is. We sang, standing on the promises of God, that The storms of life come in. We start to falter as we're standing on the promises of God. We were never meant to stand on the promises of God alone. So small groups or something outside of the worship service is somebody else standing on those promises with you and holding you. As you're falling off, they catch you and they bring you back up. We're walking together and we're standing firm. That's what the midweek meetings are. You know James 1, the man who looks in the mirror and then says, I need to change that, and then immediately walks away and forgets. Small groups are just holding up mirrors saying, let's go to the mirror together and remember. Let's remember together. And it's not, oh, you have something that needs to be fixed. It's, I have something that needs to be fixed. I forgot about it from Sunday till now. Praise the Lord, we're going to the mirror together. I think this is how to fix it. Is this how you would fix it? This is why we did side by side together as a church. So that we knew what it looked like to peaceably, gently encourage each other in their struggles. To honestly assess and open up with what we have in our hearts as sin that need to be addressed. So we need small groups. We need midweek meetings, whatever you want to call them. Again, I'm not saying they have, they have to be small groups. They can be one-on-one. They can be whatever. All I'm saying is Sunday morning by itself just is not enough. It's not enough. So seven reasons why, and these will be up on the screen as well. Seven reasons why we're going to go through these quickly. I, these, I think these are so excellently worded. I just took them from John Piper, put them up on the screen. Um, so number one. Why do we need small groups? The impulse to avoid painful growth by disappearing safely into the crowd in corporate worship is very strong. I think everybody's felt that. You have a conviction. The Lord just wrecks your soul on a Sunday morning. And you're sitting in your chair going, I need to change. And even as you're thinking that, you're thinking, I've got to tell somebody and... And say amen, blessings on the rest of your day. And the first person that comes up to you says, hey, where are you going to watch the Super Bowl? And the moment's gone. Fleeting. Or you know that you have to, to change something, but you just kind of get lost in a crowd. Praise the Lord, we have a small church. Don't really have a crowd. <laughs> Can't get lost too easily, but I have seen it happen, and people have told me that it's happened. So no matter where you are in a, in a worship service, it's still a crowd to people. So you need to go someplace where you just can't leave. Um, Number two, the tendency towards passivity and listening to a sermon is part of our human weakness. That's why we went through expository listening as a church when we first started the church plant. How to take a sermon, digest it for ourselves, and then let it reverberate in our church, in our small groups. Let it reverberate. Um, This is why in our small group we talk about elements about the sermon. We ask questions. uh, What do you think about the sermon? What were questions that you had? How do you live it out? Just practically 
so that we don't lose it. It's not just sermon and then do whatever you want with the sermon. It's how do we apply these things? Number three, listeners in a big group can more easily evade redemptive crises. If tears well up in your eyes in a small group, wise friends will gently find out why. But in a large gathering, you can just walk away from it. Again, we see this a lot in our small group. Somebody will start sharing. As as they start sharing, they start tearing up. And as they start tearing up, somebody will um, get up from their chair, go sit down, hug them, rub their shoulders, pray for them. This is the church being the church. And it requires, I love it. Please don't get me wrong, especially my small group. Please don't get me wrong. I love this. But it requires that you hold the priority of your time and your sleep open-handed. We start at 6, well, we start at 7. We hang out till about 7.45, talking about all these things. Then we start diving into the lesson. We usually finish around 8.30, 8.45. But people don't leave until 11.30, midnight. Um, Or even if, if they leave the house, because they feel like they're an imposition to us, which they're not, because we love it. But as they leave the house, they'll stand in our driveway and talk for another hour. Why? Because this is happening. Hey, I saw you got flustered when I said this. Did I offend you? Boom. Redemptive crises happen constantly. This is where growth takes place. If you never address those redemptive crises, you never grow. Verse, uh, verse number four. Listeners in a large group tend to neglect efforts of personal application. The sermon may touch a nerve of conviction, but without someone to press in, it can be easily avoided. This is why small groups are designed. Our small groups are designed not to be more teaching time. Yes, there's a little element of teaching, but they're designed to be practical application. It's exactly what Brad Bigney said in the video. We are not wants for information. We're your want for transformation. Sermons on a Sunday morning are mainly principally oriented, and and they have to be that way. Because if I were to go through and practically apply what I'm saying to everyone, even in this room, as small of a crowd as it is, we have married people, we have widows, we have young kids in school, we have young kids who can't say words, we have all sorts of different practical applications. And so if I were to say, okay, this is the principle. Now let's talk about the application for every season of life where you are. I'm going to run out of time and we're going to shorten the principle and make the application long. I believe biblically, the biblical prescription in sermon delivery is to preach the principles and much less the application, the practical. So preaching is principally oriented for a reason. But we need to go outside of the principle-oriented and dive in practically. That's why small groups are not just mini-worship services. Small groups are practically driven. They are transformation-oriented, not information-oriented. The book is a means to an end of diving into life change. The book is not, we need to learn more. Number five, opportunities for questions leading to growth is missing. Sermons aren't a dialogue, which again, I believe that the Bible says they shouldn't be a dialogue. And so does John Piper, who's writing this. Um, Asking questions is key to understanding and growth. Small groups are great occasions for this. This is why we have, we call it three levels uh, of our teaching at CBC. We have the sermon, which is a 100% to 0%. Nobody has said a word thus far this sermon. I have said everything. You listen. Now, granted, I believe you are doing more work than I'm doing, even though I sweat a lot more than you do. I'm doing, uh, you're doing more work than I am because my work's done. I'm just delivering it. You have to take it. You have to intake it. You have to figure out what God's saying through these verses as it's being communicated. Then there's Family Bible Hours. It's 50-50. There's a little bit of teaching, kind of sermonette, but it's more dialogue. It's 50-50. There's questions that can be asked. Even this morning, as something's read, somebody asks a question about the Bible, and we stop. That's encouraged. That's what we want. That's what Family Bible Hour is, dialoguing. And then small group is practically no teaching. It should be 100% one group and 0% the other person the other way. So instead of me and my small group saying, hey, let me preach a sermon— It's me and my small group saying, hey, you guys did the lesson. What stood out to you? That's all I say in my small group. What stood out to you? I mean, I just become a broken record. Those in my small group know that I'm going to say, all right, we're in this page. Uh, What'd you star? What'd you underline? What'd you like? What'd you not like? What'd you have questions on? Go. That's all I do. 
because I do enough talking as it is. So we need facilitating discussion. I want to hear practical growth. That's why we have the three levels of learning at CBC, of teaching at CBC, and obviously one-on-one discipleship is always happening every week. Number six, accountability for follow-through on good resolve is missing in a sermon, in a worship service. But if someone knows what you intended to do, the resolve is a lot stronger. If you say in a small group, hey, I want to do this, the resolve is a lot, a lot stronger when you see him again uh, that you're going to want to get it done. And we've seen that in our small group. Again, we've seen people text each other constantly, hey, you said you were going to do this. How are you doing? Let me pray for you. It happens all the time. Finally, number seven, prayer support for a specific need or conviction or resolve goes wanting in a worship service. Oh, how many blessings we do not have because we're not surrounded by a band of friends who pray for us. When somebody leaves our church, which obviously we've had many people leave our church, um, I always try to get together with them after they leave to try and just see, hey, is it something that I, I want to make sure I didn't offend them. I want to make sure that nobody in the body offended them, that they're walking away on good terms. And pretty much, you know, 90% of the time, the reason that they leave is they say, we didn't really feel connected. The first thing I say is, I'm really sorry. I want you to feel like this is family. I want you to feel connected. I'm so sorry that you didn't feel connected. Second thing I ask is, can I, can I politely ask, what were you involved in at the church? And bar none, with no exception, every single person that said that to me, which is many, uh, I, don't, I don't feel connected. Every single person has said, I go to the worship service. And I just ask politely, is that all you go to? And they say, yeah. And I say, can I just assure you, if I went to the worship service alone, I would totally feel disconnected too. Like, bagel time is not fellowship. (laughs) Um, Especially when I have to go to my guitar, get the sermon finished, look through the notes, get the announcements ready, and make sure my kids aren't dead. Um, It's not, it's not settle down and just talk and chill. Um, so, I mean, that, I, would, I would plead with you. Do you feel like this is your church family? Do you feel connected? Because my, my inclination would be if you don't feel a part of this church um, or don't feel connected, my guess is maybe you have not prioritized. We are obviously at fault in that. It's not one person's alone at fault in that feeling. We need to do a better job, and that's why I appreciate when the people tell me I didn't feel connected when this happened or this didn't happen that I thought was going to happen, so we need to change as a church. But it takes two people to have this feeling of disconnectedness. And so as a church, my question to you would be, do you prioritize being involved in, sm- in small group, in fellowship, in midweek meetings where you can just be naked and exposed and completely transparent so somebody knows you? Somebody knows your struggles, and that's why I love side by side. You don't have to put up a facade or, or say that you're better than you think you are. You don't have to do that. You're needy. I'm needy. We're all needy, and we all need each other. Let's just admit that, and we can move on. Uh, if we don't have small group, if we don't have a fellowship, we can't live out First John. It says you can't love others tangibly, and if you don't love others tangibly, you're not loving God. There's no equity for future confrontation if you don't know somebody, if you just see them every Sunday morning and then you go, hey, I see something in your life. You have n- they don't know you. You don't know them. Can't meet specific needs. If I can use my good friend Liz, uh, when she got into a car accident, I didn't know that until she was talking about coming to small group. And when she ended up being able to get a ride to come to small group, after her car got totaled, uh, we were able to then try and be hospitable. It wasn't like she denied it. She already had a car. But I just said, hey, we can kind of fit into one car together decently well. Take my car. I don't need my car. We'll, we'll make a way. That wouldn't have happened on Sunday morning because I didn't even find out until the midweek and I wouldn't have been able to say, take my car home tonight. Um, so, you know what I'm going to do in, in conclusion here? There's, I have one, one more page. And I'm just going to put up on the screen... Because it's just to read. Our philosophy is this. The ministry of small groups at CBC endeavors to glorify God by providing a midweek venue for CBC to meet regularly, to pray fervently, to discuss honestly, and to connect more deeply with one another so as to enhance greater conformity to Christ. So the small groups provide intentional fellowship during the week. 
more intimately getting to know other believers, praying for one another and for CBC, creating deep friendships with one another built upon Christ and his word, equipping saints in smaller group settings, sharing lives with others in full honesty and transparency, practically applying specific truths of God's word in specific ways in our lives and being transformed in the image of Jesus. So here are the last 10 things, 10 reasons why you should diligently commit to a small group. Number one, to connect life on life with others during the week. Number two, to get to know others in the CBC body more intimately and personally. To have opportunities to share prayer requests, struggles, and pray together as a small group. To encourage accountability as you build and form close-knit relationships. To interact more personally with other believers through prayer, discussion, sharing life. To get to know the elders and deacons who aspire to those offices. To see them serve, sit under their leadership, benefit from their shepherding and service. To provide venues for believers to gather with other believers and hear the teaching of God's word. Benefit from seeing Christian fellowship and Christ-centeredness in action. To provide opportunities for hospitality, shared meals, the intimate setting of being in others' homes, to follow the model of the early church who met together with regularity from house to house. Again, not a prescription, but a description of how they lived out the prescription. And finally, to exercise your spiritual gifts more often, more regularly, and more deeply. So I'm going to put all those in a newsletter, and I'll expand it later so you can read it, uh, because I know we just flew through it. But again, I'm going to close with one sentence. Can I plead with you to reassess your priorities and make it a priority to live out the fellowship that God's called us to in one another's in CBC during the middle of the week. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have even to do this tonight. Thank you for the texts and the emails and the phone calls I've received of people saying, why has our break from small groups been so long? Um, I, I want to get back to that. I want to be with the people of God in an intimate setting and in a fellowship setting and a very informal, agendaless setting. And God, I praise you for those precious three or so hours during the middle of the week when we can just be transparent, honest. We have nothing to prove to each other. We all just run to Jesus and find our security in him. So may we do that even tonight. Bless us. May we all make it a priority to be there tonight. And God, again, I just pray, please clarify these thoughts. Um, If there's anything that I said that is unbiblical or manipulative or uh, unkind or uh, needlessly harsh or or any of those things, God, I, I pray that your spirit would just close ears, have closed ears when I said those things. And that you would uh, work in my heart to communicate effectively as a shepherd, and under-shepherd in God's house. Um, thank you for this time of just family fellowship together around your word. Bless us now as we go from here, and may we enjoy fellowship tonight as we gather again. We pray in your name. Amen. We will see you guys tonight.